whether Bitcoin will go up or down is beyond me. I don't know, you don't know, no one knows. If they say that they do, they're lying. There's no fundamental ways to measure whether people will want it or not. So I can't invest in it, that's all. So its growth pattern has to be measurable. We measure growth patterns by revenue that is generated at a profitable rate and the ability to redeploy that revenue at a known rate of return. That causes growth. That value is measured by the revenue that's produced and how effectively and efficiently that revenue is produced at what profit, where break even is, and how fast that compounding rotates, that capital that's being brought in and redeployed can grow it. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I interview high performers, investors, entrepreneurs, and more. Today, we have on AJ Osborne. Lewis, can you tell us a little bit more about AJ? AJ is a self-storage real estate investing expert. He's the CEO of Cedar Creek Wealth, which is a self-storage real estate investment firm with around $150 million in assets under management, representing around 8,000 doors. He's also the president of Clearwater Benefits, the author of Growing Wealth and Self-Storage Real Estate, a great book that's a step-by-step guide about, you guessed it, self-storage real estate investing. And he also hosts a couple of podcasts in the space. He's been interviewed on Bigger Pockets for his exploits, we could call it, in the self-storage real estate space. And he is a extremely clear and articulate fundamental thinker about all things involved, investing, macro trends, analysis, and things like that. This is a super cool conversation. I found it extremely rewarding and extremely educational. We discuss what deal flow looks like for him and how he gets deals and evaluates them and what he looks for when he decides to purchase, how to not get caught up in the trap of shiny objects and what the difference between a shiny object and an actual investment is. We talk about his experience literally being paralyzed for around 10 weeks uh, in a coma and how his assets from self storage were able to feed his family during that period in time and the value that had for his life. We talk about the importance of cash flow and the opportunities for individuals based on some macro trends going on in the world. I'm extremely excited for you to listen to this episode. One quick thing before we get started, if you're listening to this, if you enjoy this, send us a message on social media. Tell us what you think of this interview. Send us a DM, leave a rating or review. Let us know you're listening and what you think. Otherwise, I'm going to switch over now to this interview with AJ Osborne. Enjoy. AJ, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. So, you know, we were just talking about our listenership, which is mostly people around our age. And I think that my generation, as well as myself, have this really bad quality where we chase after really shiny dollars. You know, you hate on Bitcoin, you hate on duplexes, all of these things that I'm really attracted to. But I think there might be some better returns out there in some uh, more unsexy markets. So what do you do? What do you attribute your ability to stay on these unsexy things over the long periods of time? Do you think it's, you know, your upbringing as a, as a farmer's kid in Idaho or, or what is it that gives you this, this resolve to stay after this one course? So, you know, really I had a, my families were farmers, but my dad was actually an insurance guy. So mm-hmm. either way you look at it, it was boring. But uh, I grew up in, you know, with a dad that was being successful in something. He was an insurance sales guy, right? And, you know, when I look at how I view and why, it really comes down to, I think, understanding. And I think that's the biggest problem that we have. It's So I I have shiny object syndrome to the max. So, like, that's an entrepreneur trait 
right? It just is. It's like, whoa, this is, this is cool. I got to learn all about it, right? But I do a good job of not executing on it unless I can line it up with core values, really understand it. But for me, I dive in, I just read everything I can. I want to know everything that's going on. And I want to analyze the cause and effects of Bitcoin, different things like that, as much as I can. I think where the problem really lies with most shiny objects is the acceptance of truth without understanding. So this idea that, yes, that is correct, or that this is the only way. And so none of those things are right. That's not how investing works. That's not how entrepreneurship works because at the end of the day, this isn't gambling. You're not betting on red and saying the dice are going to roll and or whatever is going to happen. It's going to hit my num magic number. That's not how it works. And when I look at people that are big into a lot of these shiny objects, they kind of feel, I kind of feel like that's all you're doing. You're trying to reinforce beliefs that would have outcomes that you would like without any basis of value or reality. And, and let me give you, look, for, so my, my framework of analyzing, right? I don't invest in anything in which I can measure value. So for example, whether Bitcoin will go up or down is beyond me. I don't know. You don't know. No one knows. If they say that they do, they're lying. There is no fundamental ways to measure whether people will want it or not. So I can't invest in it. That's all. So its growth pattern has to be measurable. We measure growth patterns by revenue that is generated at a profitable rate and the ability to redeploy that revenue at a known rate of return. Okay. That causes growth. That value is measured by the revenue that's produced and how effectively and efficiently that revenue is produced at what profit, where break-even is, and how fast that compounding rotate, that capital that's being brought in and redeployed, can grow it. That's it. We're measuring. We're not guessing. We're not gambling, right? We are measuring. And if you can't come up when I say, what's the value of something? And people just start spitting out numbers like crazy, right? And if you can't actually define it to me, you shouldn't be investing in it. And if define it doesn't mean you're guessing. It doesn't mean I think a lot of people are going to like this, or I think a lot of people will want this, or I think in the future, this will become a new currency, or I think in the future, this will happen. You're just guessing. And people will say, oh, that's the same thing as stocks. No, actually, it's not. I can actually look at Coca-Cola. And I can see the revenue, I can see its growth rate, I can see how it's deploying capital, I can see what its assets generate on that capital. It's not guessing, it's measuring, right? I can see when values go up and I can say, I think it's overvalued, maybe I'll wait to invest in it, right? Or I can say it's undervalued based upon a framework of multiple times earnings that I have, right? But those are still measuring and making assumptions based upon what you're measuring. I think what young people get caught up in is they hear things like, well, I bought, you know, Dogecoin and now it's, you know, 50 cents and it was two cents when I bought it yesterday and now I'm a millionaire and that's how millionaires are made. I don't know any millionaires that were made like that. I don't know anybody, any of my friends that are multimillionaires with hundreds of millions and more, none of them made any money by anything like that kind of strategy. So what I find is even if it is a sexy business, 
right? Where it's tech, things like that. The people that are running it, your venture capitalist people, everything like that, they're measuring, they're analyzing, they're redeploying. It's not, you know, the people that created Facebook, whatnot, it's not that it was a gamble. And I think that's a large misconception that we have in today's society because of the way that we're fed information, the way that we see things that are happening, right? And you always hear these buzzwords, right? And, and then the media picks it up and it creates these narratives. And that can be confusing and deceiving. It is to everybody. They want to understand. Or then two, you have a lot of talking heads that think they understand something that they don't. Like I say with cryptocurrencies, I don't know, maybe cryptocurrencies, you know, will be a major part. I don't think they're going anywhere at all. I don't believe cryptocurrencies are going away. I think the blockchain is phenomenal. And I think blockchain analytics and how we will use it, particularly in my worlds of insurance, I think of ledgering on everything re recorded of uh, real estate deeds of sale titles. It, that is technology that is never leaving. And it's going to revolutionize the way we do business. It's really good. And Bitcoin will be around probably, or some other coin. It, those things aren't going away, right? But I just don't know how to value it. And whether it goes to a million or 5,000 or zero, I don't know. And so I can't invest in it. And that's not a business. Well, it's a great way to start us off by explaining that whole spectrum, that whole landscape. And I appreciate that a lot. I want to ask you now for an area you do understand more thoroughly than Bitcoin, which is why you've invested in it, which is self-storage real estate. Can you break down the measurement details or the aspects of it compared to traditional real estate duplexes, multifamily that made you committed to that rather than made you committed to self-storage instead of yeah, those other it, asset classes? This is a really good question. Really good. Because when you're looking at where you should start and what may be a good asset class, what may need, uh, be a better asset class, the key is understanding the framework in which you make decisions more than the decision that you make, right? So are your, is your framework of making decisions based upon what you hear? Is it based upon what's popular? Is it based on this? Or is it based upon fundamentals that create value? And when we started out in real estate, it was the early 2000s, I knew one thing because everybody said it, everybody becomes millionaires off of houses and everybody becomes millionaires off of multifamily. I tried to do that. It didn't make sense. I couldn't make anything value. It, like I, I just didn't know how to do it. I was just too dumb to make it work. And then I was looking at storage facilities and storage facilities we could buy at a 10 or a 12 cap. So your capitalization rate is basically if I bought it for X amount of money, expenses minus revenue equals your net profit. That's the return on what I bought it for, right? Well, everybody was buying real estate at zero or below on a cap rate analysis. Because what was happening was value was rising so fast, their leveraged money looked like it was exploding and they were becoming so wealthy, right? If you're I buying, buying negative caps? Yes, people would buy. That's um, insane. I've never heard of that. And not even make money. That was very, very common back in the day. And lots of people were just buying up houses that made not only no money, it cost them money, but they justified it in the rise of equity. And then they would pull the debt out as equity rose every single year that had nothing to do with revenues and redeploy it. So I had friends that owned 20, 25 houses. And I'm like, geez, these guys are awesome. They're killing it. I'm an idiot. I got to go buy these junky assets at 12 caps. And 
what eventually happened was obviously none of that was based upon fundamentals. And so it crashed. It wasn't reality. And when we looked at our storage facilities, what the equity did was not important to us. I didn't care if the equity went up 10%, down 10%. The only thing I cared about was my revenue. Did my revenue go up? Did my net profit go up? How much money am I making? That is a scalable thing because then I could take that revenue and I could redeploy it back into those assets. But more importantly, I could affect the revenue. And this was the differentiator for me. When I looked at storage facilities, there was ways that I could actually improve the revenue like a business. I didn't like real estate because I didn't understand how you affected the revenue. People were just buying it and saying they were getting rich. And I'm like, but how, right? And it was just because this magical market kept rising. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing of real estate. And it has made me very wealthy too. But I didn't, I didn't say this isn't a strategy to me. And so I went to a business that I said, I could raise rents. We could do dynamic pricing. I could sell products, services. I could kick people out easily, get higher paying tenants in. I could expand that business. I could have an actual effect on the revenue. That meant I could buy it and say it was making two, $3,000 a month. I could, when I was looking at that asset, I could actually figure out a way to see if that asset could make four, five, $6,000 a month. That's why I started in storage. It was because I could control the revenue and the fundamentals that made that revenue were very clear, right? It was, I knew what customers would pay more. I knew what the valuation was. It was not complicated. And then we would just simply take that. We'd improve that revenue. And then as the revenue went up, because it's based on a cap rate, value rises, right? And so I love that about it. It's not this magical equity thing. I had effect on it. I could actually change the value of that underlying asset, which is not typical in homes and other assets. And then by doing that, I could, I could actually measure out. I could say, listen, if I bought assets that had these qualities and improved them and increased the revenues by 30%, I could refinance at the higher level, take that money and go buy it. While this one is still paying me a ton of money, has very low debt, and I'm controlling all and managing that cash flow, and I can do it again and again and again and again. So it was a repeatable, scalable process that was known. That made sense to me. And so we were doing that while I was doing insurance. And then when 2008 came, we, at the crash, about 2009, 10, we started buying up as much as we could because it just made more sense on a revenue basis. When you talk about repeatable and scalable, and you're talking about these value add functions that you go into these businesses and, and you, you know, change different things to make the revenue much higher. What things have you repeated over and over again that have proved to be like really high value add for you? So most of them are simple. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's amazing how, you know, you, you listen to a lot of people and a lot of people try to make themselves sound like, especially entrepreneurs in business. We, we love to make ourselves seem so smart, but most of the time they just find very, very simple things, right? And we've done this with the Amazon businesses that we bought. We just simply looked at it and said, your listing, your keywords aren't good. Buy it for 250,000, it's making 30,000 or whatever a month gross. And then we just went in and changed the keywords. We didn't change products, nothing. Changed the keywords, realigned its listing, put it up, and then it would do 80 plus thousand a month. It's not rocket science. And so most of the things that we're doing, we look for advantages in the marketplace where 
you're not collecting all your rent, your rent isn't aligned with the market, you don't have a good sales presentation, your managers aren't trained, nobody's picking up the phone, you're not marketing to your real customers, you're not doing online marketing, and you're not maintaining the asset. Those things right there can revolutionize an underperforming right. asset. And most businesses, if you, if people are looking at it and you think you need a wizard to grow it or to make it work or whatnot, it just means it's going to fail. It's, you know, it, we get really, really complicated and do a lot of self-funding and complicated stuff in the insurance world. But at the end of the day, it's the fundamentals that actually make it work. So complexity is a benefit when you've mastered fundamentals, but complex, uh, so complexity is a uh, an asset when you've mastered fundamentals, but complexity is a liability when you don't understand the fundamentals. This is universally true. And people that don't understand the fundamentals, but try to make it through complexity, they always get ruined. But people that really understand fundamentals of a business model that they're in, and then they layer complexity over it after they've mastered it, that's explosion. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a quote for the, for the books there. That's really good. Complexity is an asset when you mastered the fundamentals, but before that, it's a liability. I think, I think that that's true. So I'm trying to think of where we should go here. There's so much to self-storage and you're obviously so knowledgeable about it. What, uh, like for you right now, I would say that it's probably a lot easier for you to find these different deals. People are probably sending you deals all the time trying to get you to put your money with them, right? So uh, as someone starting out who's looking for, you know, this diamond in the rough, what do you recommend that they do to go and find this, you know, underperforming business so that they can use the, the fundamentals? They can just make people pick up the phone. How should they go about finding these, these places to put their money into? So if I was you right now, Kyle... I would have a hundred times more deals than I do today. It's much harder for me to find deals than it is for you. Really? Um, yes. And let me explain why. This comes back to Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett said this a long time ago, and it's very true. He's like, it's a lot easier for me to allocate a million dollars into amazing deals than it is a hundred billion. Because there's so few assets in the world that could even take it. There's not a lot of undervalued ones. It just doesn't exist. Right now, I'm competing with funds, I'm competing with investment banks, I'm competing with everybody that's got money because I need 80,000 square feet in a good market. And I need one of those that are run bad. Well, how many people own an asset that's worth nine, six million dollars that's doing a really crappy job? Not a lot. So for me, it's actually hard to find. But if I was starting out and said I needed 20,000 square feet in a third or fourth tier market, virtually every asset that I find is going to be so it would be really easy for me to go into those markets and pick any of them, buy them and do a better job than whoever has it because they're mostly all being ran really poorly and to start to scale from there. So starting out is actually much easier to find the assets. What's harder is funding it and you don't have the knowledge to do it. So <laughs> you've got to learn, right? And yeah, so that's then what I was going to ask about. Fear. Yeah. Where, and, where you either finance it or develop the confidence or skill sets to think you're going to be able to step in someone else's business and do a better job than they did or were yep. doing. So really, I kept it simple. I knew my strengths and everything else like that. When, when I say simple, this was like my entire strategy when we went into small markets and bought small assets. I'm like, you know what I'll do? I'll collect the bills and then I'll have someone answer the phone. 
That was really the strategy. It was just to actually get paid and for somebody to pick up the phone and rent a unit to them. So once again, it comes back to this fundamentals and simple things. If you can find an asset that there, it looks like crap, nobody's even pulling weeds, it's just run over. You can't get a hold of anybody. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what needs to be done to make it better, right? Clean the thing up, pick up the phone, answer people. And too, if you, if you see that they're doing that, it's almost a guarantee they're not collecting their bills. I mean, we would buy assets where 30% of their tenant base wasn't even paying that they were renting just because they wouldn't collect. I don't even know why. And that's common. That's not uncommon. We see that in large facilities. I, I bought a facility that 15% were delinquent. And it, it, it's when I'm looking and saying, I don't know this industry, but I knew I do know the basics of maybe some fundamental business principles, right? And I know what I want as a consumer and you're not doing that, so I wouldn't want it. It's all you got to do. I'd say, would my wife rent from here? Would I rent from here? No, why? What needs to be changed to allow somebody that wants to rent from here? Better yet, can I rent from here? Where's the number? Who do I call? Do I call? Do they answer the phone? I, I, I think that when you look at businesses, and this is not just self-storage, this is true to all of it. When I look at businesses that we were going to buy, whether that was benefits brokerage firms, whether that's online businesses, whether that's complicated tech startup, I say, who's the users? What do the users want? And is that being met? If not, do I know how to meet whatever the customers and the users want? And can I execute on that? And if the answer is yes, then it's not that complicated. But a universal truth. So maybe one more complicated aspect of it that Kyle had encouraged me to ask you about is the rent change system you have. So a lot of the simple fixes are improving curb appeal, doing landscaping, answering the phone, these basic things that for whatever reason people just miss. But some of the more complicated things are some more these rent collection systems. Could you explain yes. a little bit about that? So as you get big, there becomes lots of fun things you can do. Do you want to establish now, like some sort of threshold for big? Yeah, sure. I we really started doing a lot more of this. We started okay. Let me let me set the stage for sure. What, what we're talking about is dynamic pricing. That is what airlines do. So if you get on an airline and you're sitting in a seat and you look at everybody around you, nobody paid what you paid. Some paid twice as much as you did, some paid half as what you did, but nobody paid the same rate. Why? Because they're maximizing revenue based upon demand. That's what we do in self-storage. Now, when we first started out, we didn't do that. We just wanted people to pay and we wanted to hopefully up all the rents. But as we got bigger, you notice that there's different size units, there's different products and there's different people. Demand is not universal, right? So whatever you two are doing in your life and whatever I'm doing in my life and we need a storage, we're going to need different things. We're going to have different demands for it, right? That means that the price associated with that product or service is not uniform. I need to identify the highest paying people, who they are, and I need to get them in. I need to get the lower paying people out to allow the better people getting in. And as our units fill up and as demand changes, I need to adjust prices continually to adjust for that. That way I can maximize revenue. Now we did this starting out all on spreadsheets. It was a ton of work and it wasn't very efficient. But as we got better and as we got bigger, we bought this software product that will run it manually as we input the inputs every day in real time. 
switching over and it'll actually spreadsheet and show us and we can analyze like heat maps where tenants based upon market rates which ones are below which ones are not where we can up rent where we can't and when we first introduced this it added on four to seven hundred thousand dollars just for what we had just to maximize rent that was not being maximized and we were already really good at it really good at it yeah that's the adding complexity after you've mastered the fundamentals right exactly we knew how to use right. the tool. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So today we're releasing a podcast with this woman named Mona El Issa. She is the founder of a decentralized finance company and she's been operating in the space way before, like she started in 2015, before the space was even like Names. real basically. Okay. So she's seen it, you know, thousand X while she's been building in the space. And I think in a similar way, you've been in self-storage while it's gone through this huge boom. It's almost like a meme now. People are, you know, on Twitter, they're like, I mean, this guy, this guy, this guy, they all started self-storage YouTube channels. So like, what, what have you learned through this big blow up of the industry that you've sort of been building in for so many years? And how do you, and what do you think that we should stay away from, I guess? Yeah, that's a great, great thing. So it's interesting at the top of the market, that's when you hear. Okay, that's the first thing you always need to realize. When you're at the top of the market, the noise is loud. Why? Because you have people that are in it that have never been even through a downturn. And they talk like it's easy. All you got to do is buy it and sit and wait, right? This, I don't care if it's storage. I don't care if it's housing market. I don't care if it's currency. It doesn't matter. This happens in every industry. And at the top of the market, the noise gets big because all these people are trying to teach and they're trying to make money off of people to teach them how to do something that they got into in the middle of a bull market, right? This can be dangerous because you don't actually know if their strategies are good. You don't even know if their performance is good. You have no idea because they're being lifted up by something that is has nothing to do with them, right? And you're right. You get on Twitter and there's got to be 10 guys on there that started in 2016 or 17 and you're like congratulations you went through the four greatest years that self-storage has ever had in its entire history of course you're successful you'd have to be a moron not to be literally like it, it like all you had to do was hold the asset and you were successful that's the kind of stuff you need to look out for you need to look out for people that have been in it short term but think that they know and have seen everything and two you also have to be careful and, and i know this because I, I i chase these people down these holes and when I was young, I was like, oh man, they know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. Only to find out that they didn't. And that only, you only found it, Warren Buffett says, you know, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out, mm -hmm. right? There's going to be a lot of people that during the next pop are going to be gone. You'll never hear from them again. It happens every single time. It clears out. I look for long-term strategies in long-term business models in long-term markets. So when I'm analyzing from the top to the bottom, I'm looking at macroeconomic trends that will benefit, right, that industry over a very long period of time because I can't time markets. So there's no reason I even want to try. That's a, that's a, that's a Vegas game that most everyone loses mm -hmm. uh, because no one truly can. So I need to identify these long-term trends because all I'm doing is riding a wave. I'm riding an economic wave. Is the wave going to die or is it just starting? 
and what drives it? What are the forces that create that wave? Then from there, after I've identified that, I'm like, now I got to learn how to surf, right? Yeah. And so when I look at how this works and when I look at people, there's some people that have just jumped on a wave and they're getting pushed and the wave's doing all the work and they're not doing any. And those are the people that get in trouble. When the wave crashes, they drown. So you got to be very, very careful on who you listen to in today's age. I mean, there's people out there saying, oh, you know, I made millions in the stock market. So is everybody else who put any money in the stock market (laughs) at all in the last five years, right? You didn't have to do anything to make money. And I feel like, especially when you're younger, it's easier to get in that trap because people that are younger to you are more relatable, right? You got this 25 year old driving a Lamborghini. That's almost always, that's almost always, always, always the key to not listen to them because they're either trying to sell something or, or, or something else. This well, happened a, in 2008. <laughs> exactly. Or it's a lease. It's just totally fake. And I, I got to tell you, all those people during the last big economic crisis, they went away. There was nobody selling real estate courses. Nobody was buying houses. Nobody had Lamborghinis. Nobody had nice homes. No, it all disappeared. Yet the wealthy didn't. The wealthy never went away. Why? Because there's a difference between being rich and wealthy. Rich people make a lot of money. The wealthy don't need to make money. Their money makes it for them. And the key to that is staying power, long-term trends, right? You don't want to be a blip. You don't want to just be this little noise and then be gone. You want to be in it for the long haul. You want to build long-term life-changing wealth that creates financial freedom, not destruction. And at the top of any markets and any asset booms that is caused by government intervention, Right. I mean, sitting there going, you think you're smart. The government handed out four trillion dollars. The government's making you rich. It's not you. Right. Identify the cause, the fundamentals. What's driving these? What's not? Is this sustainable? Right. And try to cut through the crap. It's really important. Yeah, and I, I want to talk a little bit about what that long-term thinking, what the result of that was for you, you know, after your uh, huge story and being paralyzed. But I want to first touch on this macroeconomic perspective. Like, what do you think? I mean, you're right. The, the Fed printed $4 trillion in the last year. Asset inflation is insane. Lumbers up hundreds of percents. Like, it's, sorry, my internet cut out. But how should we be trying to play these long-term games in the face of, you know, being 21 with the Fed just printed 40% of the dollars that have ever existed. And like, uh, and, and how do we navigate when we're not, we don't have a a surfboard yet. You know, we're, we're we're just coming out of college. We're we're about to start our lives. And I, I mean, I believe that we will see a great crash and, and everybody will have their pants taken off. We always do. So what would your advice be? Okay. This is probably the best question that any of you could ever ask, because the reason like crashes are inevitable, like Mm -hmm. death and taxes, we don't solve them. They don't go away. Right. In fact, all humans do is we make those worse. Government intervention makes them worse. So knowing that it has, that's an easy acceptance to now have in life. All right. I got it. It's going to happen. In fact, it's going to happen every 10 years. So once I understand that, we need to get a framework and analyze the noise. You turn on the TV, it's just doom and gloom, or it's boom and boom. There's no in-between. Why? Because the in-between, the boring stuff doesn't sell, right? It's either got to be on fire, you're all going to die, or it's got to be you're all getting rich and driving Lamborghinis. 
That's not how the world works. That's only how it works on a screen, right? So I, I did a whole podcast on this two days ago. It hasn't been released yet. It's releasing next time. But the framework to navigate these kind of times, what I'm looking for is I invest all the time, down markets, up markets, sideways markets. Because if a good deal is a good deal today, it's a good deal tomorrow. It's a good deal on a downturn. It's a good deal on an upside. The difference between its performance tends to be cherries on top, not the rule. It's not, I don't need that cherry to actually make it work. But if it booms, that's great. Thank you. I'll take my cherry and be happy I got it. But if it doesn't happen and we have a downturn, it still pays the bills and it still pays me. That's the key. Finding a strategy that can be executed on and understanding the value. So you can buy deals today that you're like, this is a great performing deal. Whether the market goes up or down, the fundamentals are very sound. The tenants are, right? The underlying fundamentals of the business strategy, the demands here, we can execute it. It is not based upon short-term things. These are long-term needs that have been from the past and will be in the future and it works today. I can buy it and it works and it's not a razor thin thing. When you're dealing with razor deals, what I mean by that is it works as long as markets go up. That's immediately the problem. Listen, it doesn't make a lot of money, but I'm gonna get 3% increases every single year. So in five years, this thing is gonna be awesome. I hear that all the time, right? Like I feel like apartment investors are famous for it. It doesn't really make money now, but I get the depreciation. So I save money on my taxes. So that means I'm actually making money. No, that's foo-foo financial fluff that you're making. It doesn't make any money. And what happens is you have a recession the next year. You have a 5% vacancy drop. You're negative. You can't pay the bills. Your equity goes down. The bank closes on you. And now you're bankrupt. That's what you want to avoid. I don't buy deals like that. My deal has to be making me a decent return, a good return today. Like I need a good return. And then I need to be able to improve it from there. This is what I call my margin of safety, right? Obviously you can tell I'm a big Warren Buffett nut because it can be applied to every single business model. He coined it, mine's different though. And it is the spread between what I'm buying it at, right? And what it should be operating. This isn't years, this isn't things. This is like the moment I buy it, I'm. I'm changing that day one and the next month it's, it's improved. I also call this the money on the table, but that's the buffer. So if things go wrong, right, which I stress test, what happens when occupancy drops? What happens when, so I'm analyzing all of that and the time frame in which it takes to change that asset over. But at the end of the day, I'm like, this is a good deal. It's a good deal now, it'll be a good deal tomorrow. And I lived through the great recession and I owned investments through the great storage facilities. So I stress test it, I look at it. And if it's a good deal, I buy it doesn't matter the Fed. I watch the Fed very closely. I watch what's going on in the markets very, very closely, but I can't predict the future. And I don't know what's going to happen. A lot of people said, oh, coronavirus is coming. The world's going to end, right? So the markets just seized, just stopped. Mm -hmm. The CMBS markets just closed. And we picked up a massive, awesome office building on a major exit, five acres in a downtown for $4.5 million that three months later was worth seven. And I didn't even touch it yet, right? And I'm turning the entire thing and I'm remodeling it. We're gutting out all the different floors and we're turning it into a massive storage facility that when we're done with it, it'll be worth 25. And then we went and picked up another asset that they were scared. They wanted to get out of it. We got it for 6 million. 
it was so underperforming at 6 million, it was a great return because I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, we may all die. <laughs> I didn't know. Nobody knew. <laughs> but I'm like, this is a good freaking deal. So I'm buying it. Right. And it turned out it was. Whether it kept going, whether the market crashed, it was a good deal. And then when it popped back up, there came my cherry. And that was beautiful. But it didn't need to happen. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, the the thread through all of this from the beginning to now, my first question, it's all about measuring. So, you know, I imagine that you're probably an expert in, in taking all these variables, condensing them, and then getting out of those variables a an actionable result. Like, this means this. Like, so I am making this decision or this decision. So how, what is your process for taking, you know, what is an infinite number yep. of variables and whittling it down to things that are actionable. All right. So in the, the podcast I did, you'll, you'll have to listen to the whole thing because I go really in depth on everything that's happening right now with the Fed, everything else like that. It's a very long podcast, but it's really good. I take this, it's the AJ Osborne podcast and it comes out, I think next week. So Okay, next it's, week. It's really in depth. But basically we take the macroeconomics and there's a few things that you need to understand. The government is actively engaged in making assets worth if assets go down, we're all in trouble. So we have the United States government doing everything that they can to make sure that assets don't fall. That was like my macro thesis during the Great Recession was, they're not going to let this just collapse. So we should be owning assets because they're going to go the opposite way and we're going to get massive asset inflation due to government intervention, right? Now that is the wave. And that wave's always going. It just depends on how big the wave is, right? But that wave is always running. The government is always trying to make it work because you have inflation or deflation. Deflations turn into depressions. Inflation turns into hyperinflation and runaway prices. But they figured out they could solve inflation very easy. Just contract the money supply. Stop letting people have money. Shoot interest rates up to 18%. Everybody stops buying everything. It works really well. <laughs> so it's like, you can just flip it. That was Paul Volcker. He was the Fed of the chairman that figured that out under Carter. And it destroyed Carter's presidency because he lifted up 18% interest and drove us into a recession, but he cured hyperinflation. And everybody said, okay, we now know. And if you look at the charts since that time, we've never, ever, ever had runaway inflation because they just simply raise rates. Right now, I believe we're about to have massive inflation. Why? Because we are. You can't say that we're not. Prices of everything are skyrocketing because the government just pumped $4 trillion. And two, even though a lot everybody lost their jobs, the government reimbursed them at 90%. So they're pumping trillions of dollars into the economy, right? They're giving people money that never went without a paycheck. And they're giving them, the government gave me $12,000. If that's not smoke and crack, dude, I don't know what is. Why the government would give me $12,000 is beyond me. And the reason was because my depreciation offset my income taxes, right? And so they gave me a check, which is ludicrous. But how many other rich people got all this money? Anyways, that's all coming in, right? Sales of everything is going up, lumber, demand, and the coronavirus cut everything off. So the wave's getting big. We're looking at it. Now, that's all great and dandy. Now, what do you do with it? Now comes the micro action. So you think macro, but you move micro. 
You analyze that local deal. I analyze their tenants. I analyze that local market, the competition. I analyze uh, supply and demand, um, pricing, and I analyze the business model. So if I'm looking at a product that I want to buy or deliver on Amazon, how many competitors are there? What's the listing? What's the sell rate? What's the volume? How many products are in production? If I'm doing insurance, and it's all the same. So you think macro, but you move micro. And actions should all be under the preset of demand, scalability, profitability, returning that capital back in to grow that business, right? It should look at longevity of the business model, period. Is this going to be around, right? And if it is, if it's not, how is that is, what's the infrastructure, the deliverabilities, all of that. You should just be analyzing it all. Once you've analyzed it, you can measure it. You can then take it and say, this is what could be done to fix it, what could not be done. And you can figure out whether it's a buy or not, whether it can be approved, whether it can't be approved. So it's important to look at the macro, to understand it, to understand why, because it gets rid of the fluff and it doesn't make you scared from the talking heads. But when you, when you execute, you don't execute off macro. Whenever people do that, they always get screwed. Right? They always, I think the Fed's going to do this, so things are going to go up, so I'm just going to start buying assets. Why? Is that asset even a good buy? Think macro, execute micro. I like that. And that's what, it's parroting Warren Buffett too. But Lewis, you go ahead. Definitely. I was going to say, I'm just really enjoying this a lot so far. Uh, and I want to ask a very different question from what we've been doing about why your motivation for being a writer, podcaster, YouTuber, social media personality, because it seems like you have kind of behind the scenes, right? A very clear fundamental understanding of the businesses you're operating, why you're doing them and why they're performing successfully. So what are the advantages to you personally investing so much time and energy and also building a public presence and sharing knowledge? Like what, why are you doing that when it seems like the, the business side of things could be fully occupying your time and returning a fairly lucrative return? So that's a great question. And it's also, you know, I love that question actually, because it's when you're listening to people, it's probably the most important question to ask. Am I being sold something? Am I doing, because mm -hmm. there's gotta be a reason for it. I put $4,000 a month into it or more than that. That's what comes out of my pocket into it. So it's probably, I put better around $6,000, I employees, things like that, that work on everything from YouTube to podcasts and all that stuff. And the reason why is I, I, I found out a long time. First ago, my mode of operation, I have failed massively. I almost went bankrupt because of a bad business deal that I did because I thought macro and I ignored the micro and it almost bankrupted me. It was very depressing, gained like 20 pounds, lawsuits for years. It was not, not fun. Worst time of my life, right? So I've sucked bad and I've seen how it plays out when those executions don't work. But there's two reasons why. I'm going to go over the first reason because it's more of the fluff, okay? It's not the heart of it, but it's the more of the fluff. It's the reason I started. Like I kind of mentioned before, I became paralyzed. So almost four years ago, I became paralyzed out of the blue, head to toe. I was on life support. Machines kept me alive for months. And then I had to figure out how to come back. I lost my job in the middle of it. My boss came and fired me. And I sat in the hospital. And one night, it was the night before Christmas, looking out the window, it was snowing. And all I could think about was what the kids were going to get because the hospital was going to let me out for the first time to go see my kids in months. It was, I mean, we'd been out like playing soccer. It was warm when I went in. And so I was going to, they gave me two hours. My brother and I think a nurse was going to take me out of the hospital to go home. And I was so excited to be able to see what my kids were getting for Christmas. But 
and I realized my kids are getting something for Christmas. I lost my job a month and a half ago. I'm a paralyzed guy that was a quadriplegic for a while in a hospital. And I thought that's not normal. And the reason being was because passive income from my real estate was paying all my bills. I wasn't worried about losing my house. I wasn't worried about my kids not getting Christmas presents, my wife having to leave them and me paralyzed and to get a job to pay the bills. My income from my real estate paid me and it didn't change my life. So I thought, wow, this is really important. I need to share this with others. So I started up a few podcasts and I started talking about it, things like that. that so that was the first reason, but that's not the sustaining and defining reason. That is more of the fluff. That is the more of the why, but not the execution. The main Maybe why you started, I, but not why you continue or something. Yes, exactly. The main reason is, is because I have a philosophy called be the bear. Be the bear. It, it comes from an analogy of that I'm a fly fisherman. I live in Idaho, so we got to talk about bears, right? So I, I, I love fly fishing, but when you're fishing, you have to hunt. I have to go find out where the fish are. I have to figure out what they're eating. I have to match the hatch. Then I have to work on having a perfect execution, right? I'm trying to catch those fish. I'm hunting. I'm going around. I'm spending all this money on gear. And then a bear walks into the middle of the river sits down on a waterfall and the fish jump into his mouth and he eats it, right? And I'm like, man, that's how it should be. You should be the bear. The fish should just come to you. That's why I've started to be more vocal, more things. I say, this is what I do. This is what I want. And guess what? Deals start coming to me. So I do it to get exposure. I do it to get exposure for banks, financing, investors, and get deals for me. I make my money on real estate. I don't make my money selling courses or mentoring. So I don't do that stuff. But the more exposure that I have, I wrote a book. And in the book, I said, this is exactly how you do it. This is exactly what I like. And this is exactly what I need. People started saying, that's awesome. You talk about this in your book. Here's a deal that's just like that. And I'm like, thank you. I'm now the bear. And that's why I think that that stuff's important because it creates opportunity. If people don't know anything about you, they don't know what you want. They don't know what you're interested in and they don't know what you're doing. How are you supposed to expect somebody just to call you up and give you something, right? That's not how the world works. So that's why I dove really deep into it. And I do things like podcasts. And to, to let me be very clear, I actually like this. I love talking with people and I'm a total nerd about anything, finance, economics. I love interviewing people. So I, I really like it, but it delivers a lot of opportunity for us to move forward and grow our company. And so I keep doing it. Yeah, if I yeah, knew I someone that. that was trying to, to move a cell storage facility, I certainly wouldn't know to call you unless you're out there doing it, right? And exactly. maybe some people 10, 20 years older than me that actually do have friends that are stuck with a distressed asset will actually know about you. And you'll rank on Google for those things where you would not mm -hmm. have otherwise. Kyle, what yep. were you about yeah. to say? I was going to say, it's funny that you say that. I have a, a relationship with a guy here in Birmingham who owns a lot of self-storage and he's an older dude. He's sort of you, but like 40 years from now. And he sort of has that same philosophy in that on, it's a giant company, but on every billboard, every, you, you can find this guy's number and you can call his cell phone. And he says that it's basically the same thing. Like if someone's going to call his company, and to give a deal to him on a Sunday, like he's the only one that's going to pick up the phone. And so it's like the same thing. He didn't have any social media, but if he did, I'm sure he'd be, he'd be doing that the exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm just the new school version of it. Exactly. But you're great at speaking. I just want to compliment you on your, on your bravado and your ability to, to think it's, it's very clear to me that, that you're good at it. And I'm working on it myself, obviously. 
<laughs> well, and, and two, that's, I think people need to understand. My, my first time I spoke was at, at, really in front of a big audience, was at a church event, right? And I spoke, and it was just like horrible. It, it's the kind of, sp- when you know your parents are just like, oh my gosh, shut our kid <laughs> up. Like, this is so bad. And I was like, I got done. And he's, you, you know, right? It's not like you don't know. You're like, I, I can't believe I just kept talking. And in, in your brain, you're like, you need to shut up. And for some reason, your mouth doesn't. And it just keeps on like horrible. I'm like, I'm never getting a date again, right? I'm just going to go bury myself and die, right? So most of these skills and, and talents and things that you deliver, these are really things that you work at over years and years mm-hmm. and years and years. And I think that's really important to know what I thought was value, how I figured out value. I had to screw up. I had to make mistakes and you do too. So in order to make in order to get better, in order to find opportunity, in order, you have to screw up and you have to put yourself out there and you got to look dumb sometimes. And when you do say, that was it, right? I did something stupid because it's just going to happen. That was a really hard thing for me to get over because I was already like, I, I, I forced myself to do speaking and talking and things like that. But on social media, that was kind of hard for me because I, I was already had some success and I'm like, I want to screw this up. I don't want to be an idiot. Right. I don't want people to look at this and be like, this guy's a moron. And that's a tough thing to get over. <laughs> so, but that's how it that's how it works. And I think it's important to identify skills that make you a good leader, like speaking or clearly articulating your views, your vision, your dreams while you're while you're doing it. And if those skill sets are important to get you where you're going, get out there and force yourself and put yourself in positions to do it, even when you know you're gonna screw up. And you just kind of get better and better and better over time. It's one of the reasons I like podcasting. Like right now, I'm per, I'm I am actively practicing, right, expressing my ideas, my business models, why I do what I do with you guys. I'm actively doing it today. And the more that I do this, when I sit in front of banks, when I'm in with investors, when people are hearing me every single time, it's getting better, it's getting more clear. And then, you know, after a decade, people are like, wow, you really articulate things very well. And I'm like, it's just natural. <laughs> I love that. That's funny. Yeah, we, uh, I've definitely gotten better through 64 episodes. Not, not great yet, but we're working on it. Lewis, what's up? I think you're doing a good job, but I want to ask now some quick bonus questions, kind of wrap faster sequencing, faster pacing here. We didn't have time to get into the story of how you repurposed a super Kmart into a self-storage facility, but I wanted to ask you, what are some other potential use cases for closed big box retail besides self-storage that you think could be interesting? So big box retail, we got into that right now. Our big thing is special use office buildings. So we bought one six months ago. We're buying, we've just bought another one. And they're office buildings that are don't have good utilization anymore for them. And the companies that under them or that occupied them before are going by the wayside. And nobody wants to occupy a hundred thousand square feet. And so they're like, well, what do we do with this thing? That leads for excellent opportunities. Because one of the hurdles you got to jump over when you're doing like development, things like that is working with the city and the politicians and getting them to allow you to do it. Well, when they've had empty buildings sitting around, there's nothing the city's like worse, right? It destroys the city. People end up living in it. It starts to get run down and it becomes a dangerous area part of town. So they're really motivated to work with you 
to revamp that and make it better. And that has been a good, good avenue for us. So retail now, office buildings, as well as another thing I'm looking at is strip malls. So we have under contract strip malls where we're actually moving tenants around the strip mall and we're pre creating a place in the middle of the strip mall to allow for this utilization. So we'll pay for the tenants to be moved. We'll carve it out and use it because some tenants are in there, but half the strip mall is sitting empty. So mm. well, that's interesting. And I know you said last mile delivery is something that you're interested in for the future, something that you'd be in if you were our age, something you'd be looking at for the next 30 years. Yeah, so you guys are really, really lucky because there's so much change happening and there's so many things that you guys can risk because I, I mean this in the nicest way possible, but your time is just not worth anything. So go use it, right? I've got four kids, a wife and a kid, a wife and four kids. I've got, you know, house, I've got all those businesses, everything else like that. I, there's, there's places in the economy that I'm just like, oh, this is just such an incredible opportunity that I can't touch because I don't have the time to do it. And for me, the opportunity cost of getting away from my core competencies is way too big. But for young people, you can, you can say, I'm going to spend the next 10 years, right? Eating freaking ramen noodles, getting a little place where I can sleep and working on this thing this change, this new way of doing things or investing, use all my money and reinvest it. I'm going to house hack. I'm going to, you know, in that, that is, that is such a big opportunity. I don't think you guys even understand. And you don't ever realize it until it's gone. It is the most underrated opportunity in America is the time that young people have to change things and to build wealth. It's also the most underutilized opportunity. So when I'm looking at things that I can go in, I have to, for me right now, the big changes that we're seeing and we're doing is large scale, large scale development. I'm doing large scale revitalization of certain areas to try to solve things like last mile deliverables, autonomous vehicles, pickups, drop-offs, integrating software with hard assets, including cars and vehicles, and how those things may work. Almost always people like me and bigger companies they patch in things that other people have built. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go buy a $150,000 autonomous vehicle, right? And that autonomous vehicle is running on software that somebody else made and other parts that some other, a bunch of other people made. And then I'm paying a premium to package it all together. You do that. I'm not breaking it all down and building it from scratch, right? So most of the time when you're looking at these problems, like last mile, things like that, it's an array of different things that individuals, companies, young people are coming together, building, and you package it all together, and then you sell it to the big guys. And the opportunity to solve micro problems in macro problems is infinite, and it is outrageously profitable. That's inspiring and exciting for our audience and for Lewis and I, and I know we're running up our time here, but I'm gonna ask you one last question about Idaho. I don't know anybody else who lives in Idaho if you were talking to somebody who was thinking about moving anywhere, Idaho being one of them, what would you say to them to get them to, to move to Idaho? It's the fastest growing state in the United States. Boise, Idaho is the fastest growing city. We have low cost of living, good temperature, whitewater rafting, endless mountains, skiings, clear rivers, everything's new. And it's got, you know, it, when you look at these areas that are growing, it's fairly simple. We see the great migrations that are happening and people want to go somewhere where they can live. And like really live. 
like, you know, nobody really lives in LA, right? That doesn't happen. They just, their souls die. I mean, it's, you know, it's like these large cities just suck you to death and people are done with that. You know, I, I got, I got some friends in Alabama, Mississippi, you got, look at the Southeast and look at the inner mountain West and what's happening in the inner mountain Northwest. And it's clear the migration patterns are astronomical. The amount of people that are moving out of California and New York, because it's just too much, they can't do it anymore. And the, when they get here, when people get here, I, we have people that move here sight unseen. They've never even been here and they just pick up and move and they show up and they're just like, this is amazing. Like we have life again. It's beautiful. There's water, you know, there's things to do. And yet we can make good money. There's tech companies, it's booming. There's lots of money being made. Yet we can have a nice house, yard, and our kids can go to school. There's no crime. And that is a huge factor. So when I'm young and I'm looking at places, I look at the migration patterns. If I was, if I was 25 today, I would never be going to LA to make money because you're not going to, right? I'm looking at Austin, Texas. I'm looking at Nashville. I'm looking at Boise, Idaho, right? I'm looking at all these sub markets that are booming, companies are going and growing, they have a lot of need. If I'm in Boise, Idaho, and you have skills, we need you. We have a massive shortage of workers because there's so much opportunity here. You go to these big cities and you're just nothing in a sea of nothingness, right? So go where you're needed and go where there's opportunity for 10, 15, 20 years, and you can stand out. And that'll benefit you so, so much. Back to supply demand fundamentals long-term thinking and being a macro, a micro mover in the, the macro migration pattern trends. But Kyle, you want to sign us off with the final question? Yeah, AJ. So where should we send people to find you? Thank you very much for coming on, obviously, but where should we send people? Yeah. Instagram, <laughs> AJ Osborne. You can go to Instagram, my Twitter, or self-storage income or ajosborne.com. Any of those things. I DM me. I answer my DMs. It may take me a little while to get through them, but you get an answer. It may be a month later, but you're going to get it. And, or you can just email me on those. And I have a, a team of people. We look at all the emails. So I look at all my DMs, all my emails, everything. So any one of those is fine. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the Lewis and Kyle show. This has been a great experience for us. And thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thanks for having Absolutely. me, guys. This was fun. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And that wraps up our episode with AJ. It was really insightful, really enjoyable. Three quick takeaways from me, basically parroting what he had to say. You know, you want to you want to understand the macro environment as best as you can, but you need to realize that you'll never be able to predict the future and you can't really know what's going on all the way. So you have to move micro. You have to only you can only control what you can control, so you must control that. And and don't be too afraid of the macro environment to make things happen when the fundamentals are aligned with your view of reality. And then the second thing is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. We talked um, early on about Bitcoin. And one of the things that is difficult to understand about Bitcoin is that it doesn't throw off any cash flow. So how do you measure the, the, the value of it? You know, I've got some different opinions on Bitcoin. I'm a believer. He's not. But I think that the fundamental statement there of investing in things that you can measure, investing in the, in the cash flow of a business and not betting on the appreciation is the, the game that we all must be playing in order to be successful. 
because the the appreciation is just like you said it's just foo foo it's just it's just finance it's the markets we have no idea what's going to happen but we know how much revenue we know that we can control the expenses of these different assets and and that is the sort of investor that i want to be so it's really great to to have a conversation with someone who is that sort of investor and then the final point is you know like i said in the last one is just measuring everything everything that can be measured should be measured and that is what leads to good decisions. I liked his frameworks that he gave to us for taking this giant, you know, world of variables and, and reducing it down to actionable decisions and, and being able to do that at speed is, is a very important skill that I think, you know, I want to develop in myself over the coming years. So it's good to, to talk to people that are living that out. And it's obvious that, um, playing that game for him has made him extremely successful, not just financially, but also mentally. And that's the sort of person that I want to be. Hell yeah. I will quickly say about Bitcoin, it's not that he's not a believer. He just doesn't view it as an investment because he mm -hmm. says like, it's entirely likely it'll still be around. It's just a bet. He'd prefer to bet on other things, but I didn't really hear any Bitcoin hate either, which is cool. Anyway, my takeaway is uh, first, very similar here. The importance of this was very early in the interview the necessity of having understanding or basically the uselessness of truth without understanding. So it is only useful to know things about it. Or like, don't just accept something as true without understanding why it's true at like a very fundamental level. Otherwise, you're likely to get burned for some hidden assumptions that you didn't understand when things may or may not change. And kind of an extension of that was a point he made later on in the interview about making decisions off of fundamentals versus making decisions off hearsay. I've done a lot of irrational things. Like I'll see a tweet from Pomp and be like, oh shit, I got to sell a third of their portfolio. Nat Eliason says, you know, if you've been holding Bitcoin for six months and it hits 50K, you know, maybe it's a good time to walk in some profits. And I'm like, all right, that's one tweet that's going to shape how I spend a couple thousand dollars. That's pretty awesome. Uh, very irrational. Whereas he and any actual other person who invests for a living has a decision criteria framework and they actually look at the fundamentals and make decisions and choose a course of action based on, as you said, Kyle, measurable things such as cash flow. Second takeaway is such a motivator for passive income. Literally, passive income can save your life. This interview didn't talk about as much as we thought it may have his story literally being paralyzed out of nowhere, like instantaneously went from not paralyzed to paralyzed in like less than 12 hours, put in a coma and paralyzed, couldn't speak for 10 weeks. And because of his investments in that entire period of time, even though he lost his other job, his kids still got Christmas gifts. You don't know when bad things are going to happen. So it's really good to have a disaster hedge and maybe self-storage real estate is a way to do that. Uh, third takeaway here is, you know, Intermountain West. I'm just kidding. So that does sound pretty cool. The Intermountain West. Definitely want to take a road trip out there and see what it's like because I definitely like the sound of having a large yard for activities versus being cramped up in Los Angeles and losing my soul. But that and then the fly fishing culture, be, being the bear was such an awesome analogy. I uh, just picture him, even though in this entire interview, he shares how good of a businessman he is and how strategic and clear his thinking is, he still feels like going out and finding deals is like being the fisherman with a whole bucket of fancy equipment and a whole array of fancy strategies and not even knowing if you're gonna catch a fish versus you can just be the bear that the fish jump right to. So I thought that was an awesome metaphor that is definitely some energy I'd like to emulate. That is all I have to say for this interview with AJ Osborne. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it chatting with him and sharing it with you. I ask you 
if you want to show your appreciation for us, leave us a rating or review on Apple iTunes. Kyle's making a little hand symbol saying, please, it really helps us grow the show, helps people like AJ say yes to us when we invite him on the show because he's like, damn, 75 people think these kids are awesome. 100 people think these kids are awesome. You could help us go from 74 to 75 as of the time of recording. Otherwise, we'd love to hear from you on social media. We love talking about these things and we're happy to carry out the conversation with you, even though it happens asynchronously. That's all for this episode. See you in a week with the next one. Peace.